Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Snark Monkey number 25. And welcome American Idlers, who might be checking out the podcast for the very first time. We have season 14 mentor Scott Borchetta from American Idol, who also happens to be the label president for Big Machine Records out of Nashville, who almost single-handedly launched the career of one Taylor Swift, but along the way has done a lot in the world of country music and has basically redefined how labels work, especially in Nashville and now, arguably maybe one of the most powerful people in the music business. Maybe not arguably. You tell me who's more powerful or more more high profile. Just his relationship with Taylor alone is enough to get him some attention. But he's done a whole lot for a whole lot of other artists along the way. And he's got a great story. Scott, I have known for years when we were kind of on opposite sides of the table. When I was programming in radio and he was a label rep who was touting new artists and records and established artists and their new singles and trying to get airplay for it. But he always struck me as somebody who had a true, genuine passion for what he was doing and the artists he brought to me. And for some reason, he always has been extremely kind and open and available to me to talk and chat and catch up even when I've not been in country music. And so it was terrific when he agreed to sit down in his American Idol mentor office on the uh, CBS television city lot on an off day to chat about his path, which is fascinating. And I'm telling you, Scott has this, if you're watching American Idol, you know, he's got this kind of very quiet intensity But man, there is a lot going on in there. A lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, a lot of energy. But he keeps it right down here, which is a little scary sometimes. (laughs) But but you're going to love this conversation. Look, the guy has a ton of confidence um, that could be taken as arrogance with the exception that Scott can back it up with results. He's good at what he does. So I think you're going to like this insight into your current American Idol mentor and the man who helped Taylor Swift launch into the stratosphere as a worldwide superstar, as well as many other artists, and hear about how his little rebellious punk upbringing in Hollywood (laughs) turned into what he is now. Enjoy. Scott Borchetta, Snark Monkey number 25. Scott Borchetta, please sign in. Hey, this is Scott Borchetta, president and CEO of the Big Machine Label Group and the season 14 mentor on American Idol. How's that been going, by the way? It's been incredible. I have learned so much 
working on the show, working with the judges, working with Ryan Seacrest. It's really been... Wait a minute. What have you learned from Ryan Seacrest besides moisturizing tips? Let's... Great moisturizing tips, hair gel. All right. Uh, That's what he, he taught still... me when I worked with him. See? <laughs> and obviously you got the same memo about you've lost your, your shaver, so... Yeah. Well, but I keep it nicely trimmed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, he needs a trimmer and a shaver. <laughs> Is he is he got a little scruff going He's right now? Got a little now? scruff going right now. Does he? Yeah. How's he look with that? Well, Rupert Murdoch told him to get rid of it. Uh, so well. there you go. The big man said, "What's up with that?" But keep going. You, so you walked in. You said the first thing you said was, "You just feel energized." Is is this a process working with these young talents that maybe you haven't been around that much in a while? Or well, we always have it? our hands on the music at the sure. Big Machine Label Group, but for me to actually be involved with it on a daily basis. And more than anything, it's a defined timeline. On May 13th, we're announcing a winner, whether they are ready or not. Right. So every day matters. And it's not a cliche when I say that. So, I mean, I am kicking their butt every day to try to get them as prepared as possible to be a good winner. I want a winner that has some substance. And that's not easy, man. I think that's what's always interesting about American Idol and these shows is that you do these kids basically walk in with this idea of what they want to be and where they want to go um but it's a cram course in the business yeah. of of being i mean they're they already have talent and you can develop that talent and you can work with them and and you guys work with them in various ways people come in as vocal coaches people come in as business coaches a lot of it's stage presence how to present yourself but there's also this element of when i'm pushed out into the world and yes idol is this great opportunity how am I going to handle that? And how am I going to be in the public eye? And and also, how much of this is going to be me? You know, how much do I get to be myself? Because that's always one of those things that I think the critics would say. You know, these kids are molded into something that they end up either responding to or rebelling against. But it seems like you guys would obviously want to have their best interest in mind. You want to find the best part of them and explode that out there. Well, my responsibility, if you will, as a label head is to identify talent, identify the strengths and the weaknesses, make the strengths larger than life, and either improve the weaknesses or hide them, okay? Right. In reality. Everybody's got those. Everybody does. So there's, there's only one Taylor Swift currently walking the planet. And so that can't even be the bar, to be honest with you. You have to look, okay, what are the strengths? Okay, this guy has a great voice. This girl's a great attitude type of artist. This one has this. This one has that. One. This guy has a great style. And if I could take four of them and mold them into one, done deal. I've got it. I don't have that. Right. So you have to absolutely take what's there, their own sense of self, their own artistic vision, if they have one, help them identify one if they don't, which actually isn't that hard to do. After you spend a little bit of time with them, you go, okay, that right there, that's center. Okay, we're going to build on that. With the defined timeline, it makes it more intense. So my mission is never to mold anyone. It's to make their greatest attributes larger than life. Mm -hmm. And that's when you have a big success, and that's when you have an individual. I'm always looking for individuality. And always looking for that spark and that sense of savvy within a competition. You know, what tends to have happened on Idol over the last several years 
is they all become good friends and oh we're so sad he's leaving and I'm over that I'm like this is Hunger Games you should hate the competition because guess what they want to win too do and you it, foster a, a more of a sense of competition or a and it's absolutely quality? started especially with six weeks to go yeah it's like stop this okay <laughs> if if you're going to win this. You know, it's not four of you or five of you that are going to go visit a radio station. The radio station is going to love all of you and add each one of your records. Okay, they're only going to add one. How bad do you want it over him or her? I'm sick of it. None of this camaraderie anymore. Who wants this more than any of the other ones? Damn, I thought you were going to be the warm, cuddly Scott Borchetta. You know, that guy was there for the first part of the season. (laughs) Now, on May 13th, we're announcing a winner. There's no time for warm and cuddly. Yeah. You know, this is a tough business. If you saw J-Lo's schedule or Taylor Swift's schedule or the biggest artist in the world, Jason Derulo, who was here last week, who was a fantastic mentor, well, he found time while he's making his new record, has a brand new smash hit single. He's on another TV show, and he, come over, he comes over to Idol and kicks everybody's butt. Yeah. Okay? That's reality. What Idol does provide is a glimpse into what your life could look like. It's not Disneyland. Don't come out here for vacation. Come out here and take advantage of all these amazing people that they have put in place for you to learn. Because Kasim got kicked off the show this week. Mm -hmm. He woke up Thursday morning without the support staff. Right. So it's up to him now. If he's going to have a career in music to get up and get on the horse and go, all right, man, I tasted what I want for my career. Now I've got to go build it. I think a lot of the contestants in the past, why we've never heard from a lot of them again, they come and there's an expectation of like, okay, well, I'm going to find another show that's going to take care of me. (laughs) And you have a couple of career people out there who go from show to show to show to show. Right. That's not reality. Or that it's such a launching pad because you make such a name for yourself that you don't have to do anything. I think one of the things I'm learning from literally every person I've talked to on this podcast, which has been about, you know, their path, their journey, how they get to where they got, you know, work ethic is a huge part of that. There's certainly an element of talent, and some of that's just either inborn or God-given or whatever you want to say. And there's always an element of luck and kind of right thing at the right time, timing, all that stuff. But working your ass off is consistently one of the things that comes up time and time again. And I think that's what you're talking about, which is you have this fantasy of what you want to be. I I, I talk to people all the time about this, how you start out. And you're going to have this part of your story, too, because we're going to get to that. How you start out, what you think you're going to be, it almost never turns out to be what what it is. However, if you're willing to adapt and then willing to be as good at that thing as you can be, you can be really happy in that world. Let's start with that because your story is so cool. But, oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up the before you get yeah. away from the working your ass off part. Yeah. I mean, am I right on that? You're absolutely right. And I was tweeting back and forth with Jason Derulo at 2.30 this morning. And he had one of his tweets, if you go to at Jason Derulo, is Diddy talked to me a long time ago. Naps. I don't sleep. <laughs> and that's so right. I mean, you know, when I can get four or five hours, that's... You know that that is just wow. an unnormal and and nice getaway to go and relax. But yeah, if you're going to be plugged in, you know everybody's got to do it on their own clock. But you know there are there are times that like okay, if I can get two hours there and three hours there and then yeah. two hours here, 
okay, that's that's going to be seven over the course of 36 hours. I'm going to be okay. And so I, I kind of like remind myself, go, okay, well, I got an hour in on the plane, so that's good. So you just kind of add up and, and you convince yourself like, okay, I got enough. Wow. You know, I've got five hours in the last 24. Okay, we're good. It never. I'm doing it all wrong because I'm sleeping eight hours a night and taking naps. So oh, I good I, for you. I, I'm, I'm this... glad. You know, I haven't figured out how I can do all this and and do that. So you're you're ahead of me. <laughs> no, on but that. but obviously life is passing me by. Um, but I'm really well rested, and I've got the whole moisturizing thing going on, <laughs> and great hair. So yeah, what's left? Uh, so Scott, um, so let's talk about how you got to where you got because I think this informs entirely. What makes up makes you? I actually, I don't think I think I knew this, but I, I had to remind myself when I just did a little tiny bit of research on you. I forgot that you grew up in Southern California. Yeah, Valley yeah. Boy. Yeah, uh, born in Burbank. Yep. Grew up where? Silmar, predominantly, and right. you know, just in the heart of the valley, Granada Hills area, Valencia. Because you're so imprinted on the Nashville scene yeah. at this point, I think it just kind of I continue to forget that I mean you're the king of Nashville you oh, know that right I don't right? know about that you're the but... king um, what was uh, what was life like in the valley what did your parents do so my dad was in the record business yeah and Mike Borchetta Mike and he worked at Capital and RCA and Mercury in the 60s he started his own independent company in 1969 being an independent promotion guy who was he working with when he was here in town the Beach Boys, yeah. you know, Johnny Nash. Some of those people going through that Bobby infamous Womack. Capitol building that the Beatles had just uh, built, basically. Countless. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Freddie Fender. Were you around some of that? Yeah. Yeah? Tommy Rowe. Oh, gosh. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, it was incredible. That's and great. And I was always around it. What were you listening? Were you listening to that stuff? Did you oh, grow man. up listening to the Top Forty and you know KHJ uh, and all KHJ, that? KHJ, yeah. the real Don Steele, yeah, Uncle there you Harv, go. <laughs> you know, ninety three KHJ. What was the Absolutely. first record you ever bought? The forty five. Do you remember? The first forty five that I ever bought was "Stuck in the Middle with You." Steeler's Wheel. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what the label looks like? What it, you can picture it. I I can picture. It. I can't remember the label, but I yeah. can absolutely picture it. Yeah. yeah. You remember that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And then I remember one day driving home. My, This is crazy, but my mom picked me up from the dentist, and she goes, you know, I, I've got something for you. And she knew what a big David Bowie fan, and she had bought the single of uh, Ground Control oh, to Major yeah. Tom. Uh, and space, uh, space Oddity. Space Oddity. Yeah. And it was in the – I still have it. It, w- it was in the full sleeve, the full color sleeve. Is that RCA yeah. label? Yeah. yeah. It was. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah. It's so funny how we remember those little details. But yeah. the music has, I mean, especially for somebody who ends up in music, but music has that impact on everybody. Yeah. You just have these distinct memories. Yeah, and I remember the moment when it switched to FM, and all of a sudden it was KMET and KLOS. And that really, my my other world was was Top 40 Boss Radio. Yeah. As a just a kid, I remember. Sure. It's funny. I used to when I was listening to KHJ back in the day. Those those jocks were so alive. Oh yeah. And I, for whatever reason, as a very little kid, I used to envision that the music I was hearing 
that the bands were coming in and out of the studio. It's sure. like, okay, well, that's the Rolling Stones, and that's the Monkees. It's and all they, happening it's right all, there. Yeah, and I mean, that's how I envisioned it. I think that's a real you common know? thing for a kid. You just have this. That's one of the power of, uh, that's the yeah. powerful thing about radio still to this day is this theater of the mind thing, that there's something going on in there. Obviously, the sophistication is such that people know where the music's coming from. Yeah. But I think that's a really common thing. It's like, that's why I wanted to get into radio when I was a kid. Right. You and I are essentially the same age. Yeah. You are like three weeks older than I am. <laughs> so I'm the younger one here. So, But I remember yeah. the first time that I heard Underground FM. Yes. And I, w- the first two songs I remember hearing were Roundabout by Yes and then Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. And I just went, oh, my God, what is this? Yeah, there's and something else the going on. they had the coolest sounding jocks, and it was Jim Ladd, and it was <laughs> just... It, it was, was a whole other world, was, and yeah. they were all of a sudden the coolest guys. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, this is not good, in my opinion, <laughs> but you turn on KLOS now, and it's the same place as from 30 song. years ago. I'm just like, okay, it's kind of, that's kind of cool, but... You guys helped kill rock radio because you didn't grow. Well, the rock you know? genre didn't exactly have any no, place to go, it I guess. died a terrible death because yeah. radio and records didn't take care of it. So how, in anywhere in that midst, were you listening to country? Did you reject it? I was listening to all music. Because yeah. I, re- I was Top a huge... Top 40 played everything. Yeah, and also, too, I remember, to me, Johnny Cash was just as cool as anybody else. Absolutely. And I remember I really liked those early Ronnie Millsap records. Yeah. I loved the Conway and Loretta records. Yeah. You know, there was, to me, it was just, it had what I call a rock and roll heart. I didn't know that back then. But you could hear that in their voices. Like, okay, they're singing to me, and I'm engaging, and this is, this has my attention. Yeah. You know, now we say, well, it's engagement and this and everything. I just knew I liked it. Yeah. I, I grew up as a top 40 guy, too, obviously. But my dad, big into country, would drag. I was grew up in Texas. So there there would be big names coming through. And I would he, literally kicking and screaming. But he wanted me to see. I got to see Johnny Cash. I saw Merle Haggard wow. at the Exeter County Coliseum in Odessa, Texas. And I did the same thing. I walked away. I mean, he had a, that was his horn section. To, you know, he had. Yeah. And I walked away going. Oh wow, that guy really fucking rocked. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, I walked away really appreciating the musicianship, the the emotion, you know, hearing the voice out of that. Um, I get chills thinking about it now because I, I I didn't. I stopped putting music in the classification at that point. So yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there were the time for me in the the mid to late seventies because my parents divorced and all that, and I was I was the angry teen. I was a punk rocker. Completely. So when, when, there when was. Did, well, how old were you when they split up? I was probably nine or ten. Yeah. And so, did it really, affect you in that way? Did you kind of? Well, you don't up know it, right? Yeah. You can look back and go, "Okay, that's why. Yeah. That's why I was mad." You know, but I was just a very rebellious guy, and I was one of those guys. Disco sucks, and you know, sure. That was just that was just me, just being honest. And so, I very much during my mid to late teen years was was kind of anti-everything. You know, I was one of those guys down at the Whiskey watching X and yeah. the Circle Jerks and, you know, all that. That, that was me. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. And, and all those those really great late 70s punk bands. And so there was a time when I was very genre-specific. Leaving L.A. changed all that for me. Well, that's also a, that's a very teen thing to, to identify with something especially 
that's you know fuck the system and and all that that that, that makes a lot of sense beverly but then you, hills <laughs> century city everything's so nice and pretty <laughs> you know? so when you you what otherwise what kind of kid were you were you okay in school were you uh, yeah i mean my brother and i were very close i'm a year and a half older than him and we always got good grades and did you we have were, an idea what you wanted to be well i think growing up at that point we were so close to music but we were also very much into racing and we used to race quarter midgets which is almost like a go-kart with a roll cage we used to race motocross we were always outside we were very competitive but we we grew up loving racing now how'd you how'd you find that who was into that you know i I, it came from my dad i went to the very first california 500 in either 70 or 71 and it never left me. I always yeah. loved Hot Wheels and yeah. all that stuff. And if you look at the logo for Big Machine Records, guess what? There's a car in it. Right. You know? Because this, this ended up becoming a real, more than just a passion for you. It was that you had I your sights set. I am the most spoiled guy you know because nothing's changed for me. It's still about cars, girls, and music. <laughs> I'm very happily married, so music and cars. You know, I mean. You got the girls taken care yeah, of. Yeah, I've just had, I've been very fortunate enough to just have. You know, better cars and, and great artists to, to have play music. But so. was that at one point like this is what I'm going to do with my life? Is ra- well, is I was race? I was playing in bands. Yeah, okay. Um, we so we didn't have enough money to really race at, at high levels, yeah. and so we were always fans of it. We got to race a little bit, and music was always there too. So I played in bands in Hollywood, and what, what was I, your first band's name? The first band that I played in that actually had a gig in Hollywood <laughs> was called Flight 401. And it was this crazy band. We had this this huge singer, like literally 300-pound guy. And he would dress, you know, in a suit. It was very new wave punk. And here I am, the, you know, kind of the long-haired T-Rex meets Billy Idol guy. And then we had the other <laughs> guitar player guy. Are you, you playing guitar? I was playing bass. Bass, okay. Yeah. And so it was great because it got us in. You know, we played at the Troubadour with a band called Mickey Rat, which became Rat. Oh, right. You know, we, and we were around. And I remember clear as day the, the moment that Motley Crue came in and took Hollywood by the neck and threw it to the ground. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden you saw these posters all around. And, and you know, I, I got to make a record with Nikki and the guys last year, our, our Motley Crue tribute record. And you Which those, was so awesome. It's a great record. Oh, you know, I'm okay. so proud of that record. You know, and I did it so much for Nikki as much as anything, just because I, I've always respected that he came in at a place where nobody wanted him, and he said, "Well, it was very punk rock, rock and roll attitude," right. and just said, "Well, I think we're right," you know, and we're just going to do this. And so I, didn't realize, I wanted to I didn't highlight. realize you guys went went uh, I didn't realize you went through that scene that makes sense now why that came together yeah, yeah. cuz so, I was I was I got to LA in 80 in 1980 Oh then you saw it college yeah. and so I was going through that period too and I was gravitating my roommate and I were like Go-Go's were a brand new band. Yeah, I and, saw them before they were signed back in the X day. X played on campus at yeah. USC, which was weird. Boingo Gee, was kind of having... We had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the Del Fuegos? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I Absolutely. love that record. Um, and then... But let me finish about yeah, crew. Yeah, well, so, the next thing you know, then uh, yeah. it's that. Yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to highlight what I thought Nikki hadn't really been singled out or, or really had any real respect as a songwriter. 
And I said, you know what? Let me see what happens when I put Florida Georgia Line and Rascal Flatts and Brantley Gilbert and Darius Rucker and Leanne Rimes and all these on these songs. And let's just see how they come out. And the record rocks. Man. Yeah. And I got to play it for all the guys. I got I somehow finagled to get all of them, all four of them to Nashville for two days. So the first thing I did, I put a two day schedule together for him. I said, I'm going to play you the record first thing in the morning and set the tone. And so I've got Nikki and Tommy and Vince and Mick all in the studio and press play. And I introed each song, and it was so cool to see the looks on their face because it took them a minute because they weren't all in. Right. Nikki was in, Vince was in, Tommy wasn't sure. I still don't know if Mick's in. Because <laughs> on the surface, it doesn't seem like that would work. You would almost be anti. You know, it's like, yeah. well, why would we do that? Right. And I think it, when I got the call from their manager, you know, a year and a half ago, I had met him before because I would always go out and get tickets. And, you know, I've pretty much seen every tour. And he goes, I've got this idea. What do you think about a crew tribute album? I said, done. <laughs> he said, what? I said, one, one condition. I want to talk to Nikki. He said, Okay. So over the course of the next couple of weeks, Nikki and I were able to get on the phone. I said, so are you in? He goes, yeah, man, I'm in. I said, why? And he goes, I've been listening probably for the last seven or eight years to country because there's more rock on country radio than there is on rock radio. Right, right. And I'm like, right answer. Yeah. I said, what about the rest of the guys? He goes, don't worry about the rest of the guys. <laughs> And so, you know. Well, that's it, right? I mean, all these guys coming up, they're just as quick to tout ACDC and Bruce Springsteen and on Even and on. Garth said Kiss. Oh, sure. He was, and Billy Joel, he was a big fan yeah. of. I mean, he, he kind of opened the door to saying, and, and everything about Garth's stage show was, I learned this from going to Kiss shows. Yeah, exactly. And so all these guys coming up, well, they'll tout them just as much as they'll tout Hank Jr. and, and you know, guys that Joe Diffie and guys they grew up with. And okay, we all have breath. our influences. Yeah. You know, they are what they are. And so you shouldn't ever hide behind them. I've never hid behind the fact of who I was. Yeah. I love all music. I don't love just country music. I love great artists. I am attracted to to great artists, well, who I think are great. Yeah. And so far, uh, a lot of the world has has felt the same Followed way. Followed right along. And let's get you there because yeah. you were so you. How did you did you get frustrated with being here because you ended up in Nashville at some point where your dad had moved, right? Yeah. Now, how, what, what was the impetus for moving on? Was it just the music scene wasn't gelling for you? or? Great question. And I don't know if anybody's actually asked it that way. Yes, I was very frustrated. Yeah. Um, I was frustrated by my environment. Um, I was with friends who, who I really cared about, but I didn't think were going to do anything with their life. And your your band friends, yeah, or just, my band yeah. friends. Because I mean, when you're in a band, that's you're there, right? You know, those are that's your core, and you know, it was just kind of a longing to see what was going on in other places. I, I felt that Hollywood was going through this big transition. I wasn't exactly sure where I fit in, right? And my mission was to go to New York. I was going to spend the summer in Nashville with my dad. He moved down in 1979. I graduated in 80, went to college for a year, 
Where'd you go? I went to Mission College and to College of the Canyons. And it was great because it made me realize that what I wanted to do with my life, they couldn't teach me. Oh, wow. Which was what? I didn't know, but I knew that they couldn't teach me. It wasn't there for you. Yeah. No. It's like, okay, I can keep doing these classes, but my heart is not in this. It's somewhere in music, whatever it is. I'm still very much this kind of angry teenager, you know, at 18, 19 years old. I've, I've got to go find out what's out there. Otherwise, I'm not going to be a happy person. Yeah. And, so, and they certainly weren't teaching the kind of thing like they have this program, the Thornton School of Music at, at USC. It, I, which, it still wouldn't have been right for me yeah, at that point. Just to be in a classroom environment? Yeah. yeah. And so I went to Nashville, and my dad challenged me. He goes, I bet you couldn't play in this country band. I said, the hell I couldn't. <laughs> the hell I can't. What makes you think I can't? And so I joined a country band, and it was life-changing. All of my music theory classes that never really made sense to me, that I learned how to get by, all of a sudden kicked in. When I learned the number system, I'm like, this is what they, this is so easy. Why don't they teach it like that? Right. And so that was my first mini revelation. And then we played in 38 states. I was, you always dream of being a touring musician. Oh, yeah. So you were going around. Oh, yeah. We were out. What was the band? It was called Sweetwater. And we had a couple of mid-charted I, singles I in the you know, early 80s. I remember that. And so, so it, was, it was great. And I, I learned a lot. And I remember a couple of very specific conversations with the leader of that band. And saying, you know, why do you do this? I think you should do X, Y, and Z. And he would look at me at 19 years old and go, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, I've been around it my whole life. I I don't know, but I just know. And that was the beginning of a realization that just by being around the business, how much I had learned. Well, basically, I I mean, that leads to my... A different kind of question, which is how important do you think it is that you did that, that you toured, that you played in a band, that you were, you saw the process firsthand? As as much, quote, fun as it was, it obviously didn't flip a switch with you that said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. But how important was it that you saw that firsthand? Well, it's always easy to look back. And, you know, now you have definitions. You know, we didn't know what 10,000 hours meant back then. Right. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wasn't there to say, well, X, Y, and Z. You know, we have so much analysis now as to why, but if I'm not comparing myself to these other people, but if you look at Bill Gates having proximity to computers mm-hmm. and Steve Jobs having the proximity to do the things that he did and, and other great musicians, you know, when you think about the proximity, it was, it was one degree away from me and my dad. I had the proximity. And so it's one of those things, you just did it because you... Because you loved doing it. It wasn't, well, I'm going to put in my 10,000 hours and I'm right. going to be the man. Right. You have to look back and go, man, I put in 100,000 hours. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, I, I took a couple of the right turns and I had the right things happen. And Well, but I also suspect it wasn't easy. I mean, that's where, that the, that's where the number of hours come in. And, that, again, that goes back to the work ethic thing, which is you probably hit a lot of obstacles along the way. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it was and just still kind of figuring out myself. what your niche was. Absolutely. Yeah. Because even, you know, going back to being a teenager in California, I used to have two and three jobs at a time after school. It was always just this ambition of I got to get out of here. I'm not going to be a lower middle class guy. 
That's not my calling. I'm sure of it. I don't know what is, but I got to keep searching. And so fast forwarding back to, you know, being in Nashville, playing a country band. I was there for eight months. I was a good practicing musician, but not a gifted country bass player. And I didn't love it. I loved being out there. I, I loved doing it. It was a quartet. Some of the guys had been in, in and out of the Oak Ridge Boys. It wasn't cool to me. Yeah. But I saw things that were cool. I'm like, and Willie and Waylon are cool. You know, then it moves on. It's like this Dwight Yoakam guy is cool. That, yeah. You know, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The point is I saw things I really liked within the genre. And it's ironic. Again, when you look back, Waylon and Willie were happening the same time that that Sid and Johnny were happening. Yeah. Right. Well, it was the rebels, basically, in, the rebels. in kind of every classification. They were the punk rockers of country. Totally, totally. You know, and again, it's always fun to look back and draw the lines. I was attracted to the exact same thing, mm-hmm. what I call a rock and roll heart. Right. Well, it's 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 kind of take, taking the basics. I mean, you can hear, even in punk, you can hear that basic three-chord structure of what great early pop music was on KHJ, yeah. you know. And so it satisfies you musically, and then it has an attitude, it has a has a edge to it yeah. and Waylon and Willie were totally that it yeah. wasn't slick it wasn't overproduced and it was emotional it came from a real place yeah. and you just and you connect that's what music's supposed to do yeah. I think right so let's get you out of the bands and how, your relationship with your father must have been critical obviously you said proximity was important did you guys get along did he encourage this did he see a future in you in this business or try and keep you away yeah, from he, it. Yeah, you know, he was kind of a tough love guy. Yeah. And, you know, there were there were a lot of issues because of working for him was terrible. Mm. And so after I quit the band, I went to work for him in the mailroom and started calling secondary country stations doing and doing promotion. He, was he hard on you in that way? Oh, yeah, like super hard. Driving you? Yeah, and also not fair yeah. financially, anything. I mean, it wasn't good. And now, I, why, I why hated you, why working for Why do you think he him. was doing that? He's just a tough guy. He he just you know? wanted you to overcome it. You think? I don't even think he thought about it. No. It's just who he is. Yeah. And I love him, and we get along better than ever now. But back then, we didn't get along. Yeah. And it was really tough. And I, that was kind of the continuation of I've got to get out of this. I've got to be able to stand on my own two feet. And so, that's why it's even more revelatory of me to go back and go, my God, I got to. I got a PhD by proximity. I got to watch my dad's, all of his successes, but even more importantly, all of his mistakes. Because if you look at that generation of late 50s, early 60s record promotion guys, Mm -hmm. that's the first gen. That's gen one. They had to invent it. Right. There was not a playbook. There was not a set of rules. And well, that's where all the pay-for-play stuff came out of and the controversy of that because they didn't – there was yeah. – why, why not pay a disc jockey yeah, to play a he was in proximity record? to Alan Freed. Sure. You know, on the East Coast why and all not? those guys. And find the influential guys and, and get it on any way you can. There were no yeah, rules. Yeah, there were no rules. Yeah. And so I got to learn so much. And for whatever reason, I had an internal compass, and we would meet with somebody, and I'd say, we're not going to go into business with that person, are we? He goes, oh, yeah, the, the check went through. I'm like – that guy's not a good guy. Because how do you know? I said, I just know. Uh-huh. And I was always right. It's like, that's just not a good person. We don't want that. That's bad money. And it, not dark money. It's just like, this isn't worth the aggravation right. bad money. Right. This is more aggravation than it's worth. 
And so for whatever reason, me being super critical, et cetera, I kind of held, started to hold myself to a higher standard. And so I started my own independent company and started really going after the more country alternative acts of the day. Like who? The Lonesome Strangers, um, <laughs> Kevin Welch, Marty Stewart, Kelly Willis. The list goes on and on. And I started having success with them. And so I went from working with my dad to a brief period of doing Cashbox promotion, former trade magazine, yeah. rest in peace. And then I went to Mary Tyler Moore's country label in Nashville. MTM. MTM. And so a dear friend of mine, Bruce Schindler, who was great friends with my dad, my dad actually moved him to Nashville from New York. Bruce didn't even have a car living in Manhattan. <laughs> my dad drove his Chevy truck up there. They loaded it up, and Bruce moved to Nashville. He went to work for – he lived with us, and he went to work for Leon Russell's company for a while. Then he went to MTM. And then over the course of, like, the next 18 months, I ended up going to work for Bruce after my own little interlude of my own company. And we had these – these great veteran guys, a guy named Howard Stark, who's still alive, who, who ran ABC. And uh, ha Howard also brought in Tommy West, who was the producer for, for Jim Croce and some other great guys. And then uh, another gentleman named Alan Bernard, who was a huge manager in L.A. in the 60s and 70s, who's since passed. But these guys had lived it and the storytelling and all that. It's like, okay, this is another level of stuff that I need to learn. And I remember the day Howard was listening to me talk to a radio station and came into my cubicle and goes, you're going to be a good one, and walked away. I'm like, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> and it was just me and Bruce in-house, in and we worked with independents, and we started beating RCA and started beating Warner Brothers. We're having number one records with just Bruce Schindler and myself and using independent promotion guys. Right. And I didn't realize it, but I was becoming a really good promotion guy. And what was the secret? What was what was making it click, or was it just a matter of identifying that 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 next kind of thing? It's a burning passion and a belief. And I also found that, regardless of if the record was great or not, you could find something great about it. Mm -hmm. It's like wait till you meet Lisa; she's unbelievable. Blah 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 blah. Or something. There was always a way. And that's where I owe credit to my dad. He was the best. Just being in proximity and hearing those conversations. Right. And he could be funny. He could be charming. He could be on point. Occasionally a screamer with his Italian blood, which I <laughs> try not to ever be that. And I'm usually not. Um, but that's where, you know, again, the realizations of experience start to come in. Right. Well, One I, of my favorite lines I got to share with you uh -huh. real quick. He would be on the line with a potential client. And he always had this great funny line. He goes, tell you what. Send me the money. If I like the money, I'll listen to the record. <laughs> we just love that. <laughs> well, I think one of the critical things is that it's funny because you said you have to find something. And then you, you have to kind of believe in it, too. Because you and I have been on... We've been on the opposite yeah, side of the I mean, if you desk, want to call yeah. it, it's, it sounds confrontational because it's not because you never were. But, you know, and, and like you were saying... You had an instinct about people, you know, in my situation, in the time that I was, and I, I've been music director in Top 40 before I've been through that. Um, 
you know genuine and you know real passion and then you know when you're getting a sell job. And I don't think I ever talked to you and ever felt like you were you were just giving me the the talking points that you were somewhere in there you were finding the genuine moment of that and you and you believed it. And even if you were leaving out the things that didn't necessarily, you know, it may not have been right or may not have been right for us or whatever, but you wanted us to meet the artist. You wanted to I mean Taylor worked that way. You had to do some convincing on this oh, I've, young, I've, unproven thing, and we, we'll get there. I mean, yeah. we can get to her in a, in a little bit. But I think you can't fake it, right? Not for me. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm pretty black and white. If you ask me a question, for better or worse, I I am probably going to answer it. Yeah. You know? But that I think people appreciate that. Um, let's get you to... It's interesting because you have said it many times now, and I, I hate to leave forward too much, but I think the formation of Big Machine is a, is a huge step for you. And um, it, whether you want to say it's the more mature version of the rebellious teen or if it's the guy in the band who says, I, I, I don't belong here, and I, and the, or the guy who says, I'm not going to be lower middle class, it is this restless nature of... I need to be in a place where people aren't telling me what to do. Sure. And that sounds like, I mean, tell me, I know that it came from, a, again, another dissatisfaction. And I know you're not going to badmouth people that you worked with unless you want to. <laughs> um, but it was really more about, I just don't like the way things are being done. I think I can do it better. Is that, am I it really was. that right? So I'll fast forward so you just have the chronology. So Mary Tyler Moore. 89, I start my own independent company again and become very successful as an independent promotion guy. 89, 90, I went from zero to being one of the top guys in town. And so you're getting courted by labels probably. I'm this. starting to get courted by labels in 1990. My two favorite rosters at the time were MCA, which was George Strait, Reba McIntyre, Vince Gill. Huge. The list goes on. And Warner Brothers, who were super hot at that time. And it was Highway 101. And, you know, so many other very cool artists that we were working. Dwight Yoakam, Randy Travis. Right. Those were completely two different sides of the tracks, though, as far as promotion. And two different company cultures. Yeah. And even though I loved what was going on musically out of Warner Brothers, it was all guys. It was like a boys club. And they were missing a lot of detail. Interesting. They weren't getting it done. Where MCA had a great mix. Sheila Shipley was the senior vice president of promotion who ended up being my boss. And there, w- there was a better balance. You know, you got to know what guys are good at. You got to know what girls are good at. And you got to know where to meet in the middle. And so I chose to go to MCA. So I went to MCA in January of 1991. And they had never been label of the year. And when you're an indie, you learn how to turn water into wine. Mm-hmm. And so I walk in and see all of these amazing tools and assets. And I said, can I play with that? And they go, <laughs> you work here, man. Do what you need to do. It was a seek and destroy mission. What were they missing? I they mean, were missing an additional fire. Which they, I they had just kind of found they a were, nice groove that they were in. They were a solid number two yeah. behind Joe Galani's monster RCA machine. Yeah. And... I'm like, well, let's take them out. You know, come on, we're all we're all here. How can we lose? We have George Strait and Reba just yeah. to begin with. But so, how, but how do you go about beating another label? You start using the leverage that's sitting right on your desk. It's like, 
I've got George Strait tickets. I've got Reba McIntyre tickets. I've got access to Reba McIntyre. I've got access to Vince Gill. I've got – I could put my hands on all of it. Yeah. And, you know, we would build these amazing promotions. We did all this other stuff. We were label of the year the first year I was there. And we're label of the year all the way to me getting fired in 1997. <laughs> and we became label of the decade. We did historic things. Um, as far as chart share and everything, nobody's ever touched what we did at MCA in the 90s before or since. And you know, getting kicked out, so I became very much like Dodger blue, MCA blue. I mean, it was in my blood. And all of a sudden, I woke up one day and I had been kicked out of my own club for doing my job too well. I had become too close to the artist. Tony Brown couldn't stand it, who was president of the company. And that, that, that makes and no sense. And he had me fired. And he'll tell you right now, if you were sitting in the room, I, I effed up. You know? Because Tony... Is here's, it, was here's, it an ego thing? Totally. Yeah. And to this day, Tony hasn't broken an act since I left, since we parted yeah. in 1997. You know, it's just like, we were getting stuff played that had no business being played. <laughs> and I, I went to him, and he got mad at me. I said, man... You can do better. This Vince Gill record isn't as good as it can be. And he's like, who the hell are you to tell me that? I'm like, I'm the guy on the front lines. You know, I'm working my ass off. I don't think you are. I don't think you're putting out your best work. So you were having to work harder to get not the best crap. stuff. Yeah. He was signing crap. It's like, dude, don't. He was a great producer, but not a great A&R guy. Right. So this was the beginning of your sense of frustration of, I I from product to getting it on the radio, you recognized that quality need to be met at every step of that chain. Every step. Yeah. And we were taking it for granted. And, you know, just, just the quality. It's like, man, the best of the best want to be with us. Why, why don't we have the best new artists? Yeah. And so I was very unceremoniously relieved of my duties. Yeah. I got a call the next day from James Stroud, who had just left Giant Records. He goes, I have three opportunities. I have Sony, I have DreamWorks, and I have, I don't remember, it may have been Disney or something else. And he goes, I'd love for you to, to be with me. I said, well, if it's DreamWorks, I'm all about it because I have such a, an affinity for what Mo Austin and Lenny Werner have done. And there's this guy named David Geffen involved. <laughs> and if we have a chance to, to stand on the same platform as those guys... I'm super excited about it because, well, that's one of them, and I'll, you know, I'll keep you updated. So I basically had a job the next day, but the fantastic thing was I had a contract that went for another year and a half at MCA. And while these, these other things were coming together, I was racing. So I loved it that MCA was paying for me to be a professional race car driver. <laughs> so you were and I didn't out. have to put their logo on my car. Where were you racing? I was racing in Nashville. I was racing Legends cars. I'd started racing just on, you know, weekends. Yeah. And it was starting to get good. I became the state and regional champion in the Legends. And through that, I was, you know, we were able to get a nice settlement out of MCA. We started DreamWorks Nashville in February of 98. Our first signing was Randy Travis. We, we had to make a big noise. And so I went to this great party planner who I still work with. Her name's Randy Lesnick. I said, I want to take over an entire hotel and invite every programmer to it. <laughs> so we took over the Hermitage Hotel. Yeah. We rechristened it the DreamWorks Hotel. We had every major programmer stay with us. Our first Randy Travis single went to number one. 
and we were off to the races. We resurrected Randy's career. We had a huge rebirth for Toby Keith. We had monster hits with Daryl Worley and Jessica Andrews. Me and Jimmy Harnon, who was one of my promotion guys now and who's now back in the Big Machine Label Group family, one of my absolute key employees and executive vice president of the group, we used to run in the afternoons. And we have pictures of us running. We would, Toby Keith, How Do You Like Me Now, was number one for three or four or five weeks. It was a super mega long, I think it was five weeks. Yeah. When we would hit MCA on the block, he and I would start singing How Do You Like Me Now. <laughs> And just shove it up their ass, you know. <laughs> How do you like me now? And so, you know, because I was on a mission. I was yeah. on a mission to kill them. And we killed them. We took them out. You Your know? quiet, competitive, like, streak is unsettling a little bit. Because you, <laughs> was, you are so, I mean, are you a screamer at all? Do you have that have in to. you? But have you ever been that way? Well, I mean, on rare occasion, but it's, but, but, it's but never been. If it ever happens, people know that you're good. really pissed off. Yeah, I mean, if it ever makes it to that, it shouldn't have. Are you hard on people? I'm specific. Yeah. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do, but I'm not a micromanager. Yeah. I say, here's where we're starting. I expect to finish here. I'm not going to tell you exactly how you need to do it as long as you show me you can get there. People like working for you? Our environment for people who can handle that much rope is the best. For people who need that structure of somebody telling them what to do every day and how to do it, that they don't work in. They're not going to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, because you definitely. I mean, you still have this drive. It's. I I see your body language change, and you're just like, you're ready to go. You're talking about the idol contestants. You're just. I think that being at idol has done just as much to. You know, it never is, it's never that far to away. Reignite. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just that guy. Yeah. You know, it's. So, I, I joke with Jimmy Harnon, and uh, I said, "Okay, I'm just warning you, advance. This is short fuse, Scott." <laughs> he goes, "Okay, <laughs> thanks for the warning." Well, good. At least you're aware of that. Yeah, I could. So you feel can it let coming. people know. But you know, the the people who are closest to me, they know how much I care about them. And anytime we're having a very specific conversation, they know it's not about them. It's like, okay, I'm frustrated. How do we do better? And the only way to keep growing it is to keep insisting that we improve. And I insist that we keep improving. So at what point – so DreamWorks led to Big Machine. So DreamWorks had an incredible run. You were doing really, really well. We were killing it. Yeah. And so as much money as we were making in Nashville, they were losing more in L.A., and Mo Austin tells this great story. He and his son Michael were telling Michael's kids, "Hey guys, they, you know they they had this dinner. They wanted to explain." And so Michael's, I think it was Michael's son, after they told him that DreamWorks was closing, said, "Well, I'm not surprised. Your music sucked." <laughs> Mo tells the story. <laughs> it's like out of the mouth of babes, right? Um, well, was it you? Were, you guys were beholden to the part of the label that wasn't doing well, to the movie studio, to no, everything? not the movie studio, no? specifically records, just the records. Alternative was doing great, yeah, and country was doing great. Their their R and B stuff wasn't doing okay. their R and B and pop stuff was not doing well at all. Yeah, and they were spending to to try to make up for the deficiencies, and it just what year is this? This is two thousand and three. Okay. So, so and, and the industry is struggling anyway, and this is something I kind of wanted to get your perspective on too, because I would imagine that n- knowing now a little bit more about you and just knowing you in general, 
there must have been a frustration of the internet has taken over um, that whole period of you know Napster being a thing uh, you, you, people those of us in the industry at all look back and go the label's fucked up they mm-hmm. missed something I don't did you all through that period did you have an idea of what a la- what a label should be doing as opposed to what they were doing is that part of where Big Machine came from Am so, I hitting on something there? Yeah. I see a so, big smile coming in, across in, your face. In January of two, in in January of two thousand and four, DreamWorks was purchased by the Universal Music Group. It was it was always a joint venture, mm-hmm. so they bought the other fifty percent. So what does that mean? I'm going to be back at MCA. I'm going back into the club that kicked me out. Right, and so. At first, we were going to be rechristened Interscope because Jimmy Iovine wanted a Nashville label. And that didn't happen. There were, there were some issues. James Stroud, who was the president of, Big, of DreamWorks, and Luke Lewis, who had taken over for Bruce Hinton at MCA, got together. And they decided they were going to merge. We were going to be DreamWorks, MCA, and Mercury, and not in that order. And so I get a call one morning. This was March. He goes, hey, I need you to come over this morning. Go, okay, when? He goes, now. All right. Hop in my car, go over to James' house. Luke Lewis, the president CEO of, the, of Universal at that point, and Ken Robald, who was his general manager, are sitting there with James. I'm like, well, this is good or bad. <laughs> it's definitely interesting. <laughs> What's up? And they go, well, we're we're." going to make you the senior vice president of promotion and artist development over DreamWorks, Mercury, and MCA. I'm like, okay. And what's going to happen to X, Y, and Z? And so we we put a whole plan together. I said, look, if you're getting rid of people, you're going to do it before I walk in. I'm not firing those guys. They didn't do anything to me. You're going to do it. So they did it. So we started off. MC and Mercury, if you look back at the charts, this is fact were as cold as could be. Within the first, I think, 60 to 70 days, we had a number one record on each imprint. We had that place fired up in no time. And within the moments before DreamWorks had gone out of business, James had come to me and said, how can we p- compete with, with RCA and Joe Galani and, and Universal and Luke? I said, well, we need a second imprint. Like, Okay. Well, put some ideas together for me. Well, that immediately said to me, well, maybe I could run the second imprint. Mm-hmm. So I put a plan together. And that plan, because of the label ended up ending up going out of business, went by the wayside, but it got in my head. And several years earlier, Narvel Blackstock, super manager, manages Blake Shelton and Kelly Clarkson and his wife, Reba McIntyre. I've always been close to Reba, as we've talked about. He said, when are you going to run one of these things? And that never left me. That was in 1998. And I thought, okay. My, we, we get MCA up and rocking. We get Mercury up and rocking. Dreamwork is, DreamWorks is still rocking. And I didn't like those guys. <laughs> you know, I didn't like Luke Lewis. Uh, James was, was being thrown to the wolves. And... It's like, okay, my deal's up September of 05. And I started, I put a prospectus together. And 
decided I was going to start my own label. I was tired of the way that money was wasted. I was tired of everybody being confined to their own little square boxes and not a team. And I thought, I'll be damned if I can't build a label the same way that I have built successful promotion departments for 15 years now where everybody counts. Or it doesn't have, matter. Did you have any doubt? Were you scared? I, I, I knew I could always go back and be a promotion guy. Yeah. I knew I could fail, and I wasn't going to. Yeah. It's like if I have to go back and do that, I, I will. Okay. So, you, so you'd be willing to you know, just wipe your hands and go, ah, oh, that was a fun try, but oh, wow. But you, yeah. had, you had ultimate confidence. I didn't that you have were gonna any plan of it. walking back with my hat in my hand yeah. and saying, would you please hire me as a promotion guy? And so started to just really focus on that. And, and at the same time, we're re- really kicking butt at Universal. And I get a package in October of '04 from a manager who I had not met previously, and an artist named Taylor Swift. And it's funny, I saw that Luke Lewis had gotten one as well. And I remember really liking it. I kind of chuckled to myself saying, he'll never get that. Really? Yeah. And um, <laughs> so I get a call from from Dan Dimtrow, who was the manager. He says, hey, Scott, it's, it's Dan Dimtrow. I managed Taylor Swift. Did you get the package I sent to you? I said, yes, I did. He goes, well, what did you think? I said, I think it's pretty cool. He goes, We're, we are going to be in town next week, next Tuesday. Is it okay if we stop by? I said, please hold. I thought for a minute, picked back up. It said, yeah, come by at 7 p.m. Great, we'll see you then. At 7 p.m., the only people who would be inside the Universal Music Group would be me and my assistant. Because <laughs> everybody else, you know, if the door was hitting them in the butt at 5 p.m., you know, they they were late. Yeah. So, you know, now, tell me about listening to that first demo. What was it that struck you? Because how many of those are you getting a day, and how many of those are you actually listening to, and how many of those are worth listening to a second time? Well, it's kind of ironic because once we were actually merged together, they had taken that away from me. So you weren't hearing any new sound. So I wasn't getting a lot. Yeah. Did you miss that? Or was it just Yeah, but I mean, that grind? was just part of this new regime. Yeah. You know, of like, you don't do that anymore. Yeah. You only do this. I'm like, all right, I only do this until September 1st of 05, Jack. <laughs> and so, so I wasn't getting a lot. And when I got this one, I w- it was very smartly put together. First off, it was in a clear binder. So I could see her. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, somebody's thinking here. That immediately got my attention of it looked smart. So I'm looking through it. There was a picture of Taylor in an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog. I'm like, you don't see that every day. There was a picture of her singing the national anthem at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. You don't see that every day. I put the music in, and there were four songs on the sampler, and they were all songs that she had co-written. I'm like, this is really good. And you recognized the her, songs her youth, and, and she, but she had a maturity despite how young she was. How old was she at She the was time? 14. Jeez. Yeah. Crazy. And one of the things that we had seen a glimpse of at DreamWorks with Jessica Andrews was that there was an entire army of girls waiting for a new hero. Brittany had detonated. If you look back in the timeline, yeah. Yeah. there wasn't one. And 
I thought this might be the one. If if we get it really right, yeah, maybe maybe she's it. Maybe she can walk into that room where Jessica Andrews could only open the door. And so I met with her. She came in with Dan. No parents, nobody else, just she and Dan. She's holding her guitar. She sits down. I've told this story a million times. If people have heard it, I'm sorry. But uh, we started talking, and she was just adorable and smart and funny. And then she was the gawky 14-year-old. Funny laugh, the whole thing. (laughs) And then I'm like, well, play me some songs. Plays the first one. I'm like, wow, that's really good. Play me something else. The second song was Picture to Burn. And I went, I pointed at her. I said, that's a hit song. Just without even thinking. Just from my gut, that's a hit song. And I think those 14-year-old eyes sitting inside the Universal Music Group on the other side of the desk looked up and said, this guy gets me. Yeah. I had her play seven or eight more songs. We're cracking up. She's got great stories. She's so sophisticated and goofy at the same time. You couldn't tell whether she was 14 or 21, Mm -hmm. and that's critical. And I'll give you an example. As great as Leanne Rimes is, we don't we haven't allowed her to grow up because a lot of us still look at her as a little girl. Right. Unfairly, but it's been really hard. Taylor, you couldn't tell if she was fourteen or twenty one. So that I mean critical. Because yes, because what what happens is a fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old artist, because it's gonna take a little while to develop them, that's got uh, and I remember this from Leanne becoming, uh, you know, having a hit with with Blue and, and and everything else. There's a novelty aspect to that, yeah. And that's what you were probably concerned about right off the bat. Is young is going to be the story, and that's all people are going to notice. And it probably was still something you had to fight. Well, I saw it immediately as as a weapon because she was smart and she. She just got it. Yeah. And so... So she could overcome that idea of this just yeah. being a youthful thi- you know, so, thing. Yeah, that was no- November 2nd of 04. Two days later at the Bluebird Cafe, I went to see her perform with three other songwriters in the round. And Andrea Swift has a picture, and she sent it to me just like in the last couple of years. And she tells the story, she goes, of everybody sitting in that room, which there were many label heads, there was this one guy who was just smiling so big and was so engaged. And she goes, that's, that's probably the guy. And so <laughs> I go out to meet the family officially. We have the first meeting. I come out for a second meeting. I said, here's the deal. If you want to be at the Universal Music Group, I will introduce you to all of the other A&R executives, and I will try to help you get signed. But you need to know something. I'm not going to be there in a year. My contract goes through September 1st. And after that, I'm going to start my own label. The only promise I can make you tonight is when I start my label, you have a deal with me. They looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. They looked kind of disappointed. Like, here's the guy that we want, but he's not going to be there. Shakan said goodnight. I remember clear as day driving away saying, if I don't start now, I'm never going to start. So now I have started. I am going to start this record company. For sure, that's, I already had the that solidified it. That that just I was already starting to have conversations about raising money, and it's like, okay, man, I'm going. Be damned, I'm going. And Taylor called me herself about ten days later. Cell phone rings. Hey Scott, it's Taylor. Hey Taylor, how you doing? Great. We talked for a minute. She goes, I just wanted you to know, I've made up my mind, and I'm waiting for you. I'm like, 
this is a good day. Yeah. I said, that's the coolest thing that could happen to me today. So thank you very much. And <laughs> so we, I started going out to her house. We started going through her dozens of songs. She already had so many really good songs. And so we started narrowing down what the first album was going to be and staying engaged because I still have to do this. And so in March of 05, we were at CRS, Country Radio Seminar. And on Friday, let's see, this would have been, so the seminar goes Wednesday through Saturday. I get a call from James Stroud, my boss at now Universal, Mm -hmm. saying, hey, we need to meet on Saturday morning. I'm like, James, if this is over, just say now. I was like, oh, no, no. So so I knew it was over. (laughs) And what had happened is in January of 05, they had taken me out to lunch and said, hey, we know your deal's coming up. We want you to stay. We'll pay you a bunch more money. Stay right where you are. Like, guys, I'm not going to just stay where I'm at. I said, if you guys really had balls, you'd make me the president of MCA. Now that I'm back in the building, we have number one records on Reba again. George, I've locked right back in. Make me the president of MCA. And you can see on their face, it's like, we can't contain this guy. <laughs> you know, We can't handle him. Right. And so I did it as kind of a checkmate move just to say F off. You know, just like, guys, this is it, man. Take me or leave me. Now, so a few things I remember so well about that weekend. We had three of the five artists on the most important showcase called the New Faces Show. Right. We had Julia Roberts. We had uh, Billy Currington. And we had Sugarland. I had I had made hits on all of them with the team, not me, but we had guided that ship back in the right direction and Blair Garner who's the host of America's Morning Show who you've worked with right and after years. midnight yes. right he used to have the disco party and so all of the acts would come and dress in disco clothes and, right. and do a song and Sugarland came on and I brought all the Mercury promotion department up and we sang pour some sugar on me. <laughs> and I took that moment where I stepped back. And I said, remember this, because this is the last moment with this team. So I just kind of looked around and said, oh, wow, it's cool. Yeah. So I show up. And, from, and wouldn't you know it? It's a hairband song. Isn't that You're perfect? I love it. <laughs> and so, so I go to breakfast and you know, I sit down and say, well, Scott, and I said, guys, I know what's up. It's, it's okay. They said, please, let's talk. I said, okay. You've done amazing for us. We know what you want to do. We're going to continue to pay you through September 1st. Go start your label. If you want distribution, come and talk to us. However we can help you. Thank you. I'm like, this is great. Wow. Scary. Because now it's, now it's very real. Now it's a done deal. But you know, even though Luke and I didn't agree on, on a lot of things, that was the nicest thing that he could do. That's pretty And remarkable. it was extraordinary yeah. that he did that because he didn't have to do that because yeah. I had made it clear that either do this for me or I'm leaving. And so, you well, know. The, but that goes to show the, as opposed to say, you know, getting booted out of MCA, the idea that they respected what they knew you could do and yeah. they didn't want to cut the cord on the, in yeah, that they, way. They couldn't have been. And they couldn't, and like you said, they couldn't contain you. Yeah, uh, I've been keeping you so long, and we got so much we could cover. But I, I think the story of Taylor is obvious to everybody how that, how that turned out. I mean, I have such a distinct memory of you bringing her in as a young, fresh, new artist. 
Um, and what also as a label guy and somebody who obviously connected with her so early on, what you've had to weather in terms of criticism and flash in the pan and she can't sing and then just see her audience grow and grow and grow to this past year with this very big public transition of, hey, I'm going to do a pop record. This is who I am now. And how much of that was a calculation or how much was a natural progression or how much of it was her going, this is where I want to go. You guys seem to be deep, heavy collaborators on every step. Am I, am I right in that? Yeah. And if you look at the progression, Mm -hmm. you know, people go, my God, she's gone pop. It's like, well, our first pop hit started in 2008 with love story. It's the first single in the history of the billboard airplay chart to top the country airplay chart and the pop airplay chart. And we've been building up this opportunity for years. It wasn't, hey, for my fifth album, I'm going to be pop. Right. It was just I always supported her songs, and I always encouraged her to be true to her songwriting. Did that catch you guys by surprise, though, to, s- to see it head that direction so strong? Or is it just like you – like because I'm trying to make the connection back to when you said you didn't make any differentiation between classifications. Yeah. Of, I mean, that was – Country well, and what, you just yeah, loved music. Here's what I can do is, yeah. you know, we knew that we call it spillover. If we, there's no such thing as critical mass anymore. Right. So what we do is critical mass by, by location, if you will, by right. genre, by right. whatever. And so it's like, if we can get so big in this genre, in country, we think it will cross over. We think it will spill over. It will be so big. It will spill over into other formats. So we have a huge hit with Love Story. We follow it up with You Belong With Me. We go to, that was off the second album, Fearless. We go to the third album, Speak Now. We start with a single called Mine, and we thought maybe we'd strike lightning twice. It wasn't a big hit at pop radio. It was a, it was a number one at country, but it was a soft number one. Mm-hmm. And we really didn't have another pop play. So we start the Red album. The first song, one of the first songs, was Red. And so I go into the studio with Taylor and her producer, Nathan Chapman. They play me the song. The song is brilliant. It's a brilliant lyric. It's a brilliant melody. It's a brilliant melody, but produced all wrong. Mm-hmm. And I said, guys, Taylor, if you're going to write songs like this, you've got to honor the song. This production is not right. What was different about it? They were trying to do something they didn't know how to do. Nathan knew how to make country records. He doesn't know how to make pop records. It's like, we can't fake it. If we're going to go, you need to go work with Max Martin. And she just recoiled. (laughs) And she goes, let us try again. I said, of course. So several weeks later, go back in the studio. Halfway through, I'm like, guys, stop. This is worse. And Taylor goes, call Max. So while Nathan was making other pieces of the Red Album, I got her to Los Angeles, started working with Max. She calls me, and so many times throughout our career together, it's, Scott, 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 where are you? (laughs) And so I get the call, and she goes, you're not going to believe this. We just wrote this song. I don't even know what to tell you the name of it is, but let me just sing it to you. We are never, ever getting back together. 
And I'm like, oh, my God. She goes, you're not going to believe this. We connected like that, boom, boom, boom. So through the course of making this record, that was near the end of the arc. So she ended up making Trouble, which was a huge smash at pop radio, 22, and we are never, ever getting back together with Max. She came in that moment. All of a sudden, the floodgates opened. She goes, well, I want to do something with Jeff Baskar, who did fun and a lot of other Kanye records, et cetera. Amazing producer. Butch and and Jay and all these other guys are now in her world, and so she was able to really grow. But if you look at the arc of how we made Red, it started in Nashville and ended in L.A. Mm-hmm. So 1989 was I'm starting in L.A. with Max and Johan. I'm like fantastic. I have the luxury of knowing about most of the songs that she writes. There were other songs that were country. And I'm like, you know. Are we sure we want to leave 2,000 radio stations who've been supporting you for eight years with nothing to play? And she goes, you know what? And there were, there were several conversations. She goes, I don't think I'll be true to what I'm doing if I put songs that are more country on this record. And once we got to that, I'm like, okay. We had to get to that because it's my job right. to tell her everything I can about what's going on in the marketplace, all the options, all the pros and the cons. And then she has such a great process. She goes, no, I know that this is the way I want this record to go. I said, okay, all guns. Let's go. We now go. And huge. Huge. Historic. And you knew it. I knew we had great songs. Yeah. You know, there was always a little bit of a risk of, you know, we're leaving 2,000 radio stations yeah. in the dust. You know, and that was just being honest. Yeah. Um, your phone's blowing up because yep. uh, you're very popular. And uh, <laughs> um, hey, thanks for this, man. It was a lot of fun. No, let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Okay. quick answers. Uh, will Taylor come back to country? Don't know. Don't know. It's up to her. It's what she writes. Yeah, she'll know. It'll be obvious when she yeah. when the songs come out. It's not think. premeditated, right? Um, who's going to win American Idol? If I told you I would be breaking the rules and I would be fired. Oh, nobody's listening. Yeah. It's all right. So. Um, is there a way? My son is working on an album. He's doing it all himself. He's playing clubs in New York. Um, he's got these great songs. Is Not everybody's going to be a Taylor Swift and shouldn't be. I mean, the model has changed so much. Is it worth a young artist to pursue a label deal? Or is it better for them? I want a real answer here. Sure. Um, is it better for them just to do it on their own? Name me one artist who has had any sustained success without the help of a major label. Well, I'm waiting. Into, yeah, well. <laughs> I'm waiting. Here's the answer. There yeah. isn't one. Yeah. Okay, if you want to play this game. Now, if you want to go be an alternative artist or a jam band or whatever, that's great. If you want to be on pop radio or country radio Mm -hmm. and play in the mainstream field right now today you still need a label period if you don't want to do that that's cool i there's a lot of stuff that i love that will never see the light of day in a mainstream environment there's nothing wrong with that it depends what you want but the but again it seems like the difference between the number of artists who had deals and the number who didn't uh, it the, the gap has gotten wider and wider there are fewer chances being taken there are fewer young I artists think so. I think you don't there's think more so? chances than ever being really? taken yeah 
it, how much different is the process now? Is it still a young Taylor Swift with a manager sending a package to an A&R or a label guy, and does it get listened to? Does anybody you have even to realize do that anymore? It's never the same way twice. Yeah. I have a, a, one of the great managers in Nashville, Clarence Spaulding, who manages Jason Aldean and Rascal Flatts, who does not sign new artists. He called me six, seven months ago and said, I'm signing a new artist, and I'm bringing it to you first. I said, well, I'll just sign it. He goes, no, you need to hear it. I said, you don't do this. He goes, I know. Just let me bring it over. And it's a kid named Seth Alley who's in the studio right now who's great. And it, I heard the music. I'm like, this is phenomenal. I'm in. And so that never happens. Okay? Irving Azoff, who does not sign new talent, might call me later today and say, Scott, I've got one. What's good about that is I'm the first call. Yeah. If you were forced to gunpoint to go up on a stage and do karaoke, what would your song be? Give Me Shelter. Stones. Dude. Who are you really excited about right now that maybe we've never heard of? A Thousand Horses. Yeah. Their first singles, top 10 at Country This Week. The singles, top 10 at iTunes Country. Uh, Michael Hobby, the lead singer, is the Johnny Van Zant, Ronnie Van Zant incarnate. He is an absolute country rock superstar and anything else you can predict about the business about how you think it's going to change where do you think we're going because so many people can get their music from so many different places in so many different ways now well I think you're in a moment where there was a lot of retail stores and that dwindled down to well here are the places that we go to there are going to be more streaming services and then it will dial down to the two or three that are worthy. It is going to streaming. It's going to paid streaming. Get ready if you're a free user. It's going to timeout, and that's okay. But the great thing is, you know, we have a saying, music has value. Everybody knows music has value. It's like, Scott, why are you saying something so obvious? Well, because you need to get the message. Everybody, you can feel it in the conversation whether it's an extra several dollars on your phone bill, which you won't see, or your cable bill, which you won't see, you're going to be paying for music. So just start accepting it now <laughs> and, and understand that, you know, here's what we don't want. Do you want to stop losing your favorite TV shows because you don't watch them in real time and don't watch the commercials? Newsflash, they need the commercials to fund the productions of your favorite TV shows. So do them the service of participating otherwise you're not going to have anything this whole structure is so fragile you want to dvr everything okay well guess what you're not going to have anything left to dvr well it's already changing i mean i'm i'm giving up my dvr and my cable system and i'm going to hulu plus to watch shows and guess what i'm locked into watching watching commercials now but i'm getting them for you know eight bucks a month or whatever it is okay so and whatever it is yeah, you're exactly. still paying exactly and guess what you're paying and you're watching commercials right okay no. and that's that's so kinda, that's what's gonna that's happen what's with where music. music is going yeah yeah and so if you want to pay a little bit more you don't have to listen to commercials right okay so music is not free you're going to be paying for it accept it celebrate it it's wonderful because you're going to continue to fund 
risk takers like me, wildcatters like me, to go find the next great ones. Right, and it's how you can – can are artists benefiting more directly now than they ever have in terms of what they get? I mean, the the era that you came up in, that you first started out in, that you saw the hair bands go through, they will tell you, Nikki will probably tell you, we didn't get that money. It all went to somebody else. Are, are artists benefiting more now? Well, I think there's so much transparency, which yeah. is better – you see where the money streams go. And why shouldn't you? You know, I never set out to hide money from anybody. We have the most transparent royalty statements there are. Everything's right there. You don't have to ask us for it. Why are you auditing us? It's, it's all right there for you to look at. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to, it's, it's an era of transparency. But within that era of transparency, it's harder to be an outlier. So. All right. That's a weird way to end, but uh, I should have asked the uh, karaoke question last. <laughs> All right. Good luck. Well, you can edit this however you well, want. Well, I could. I could. But I just, you know, transparency, Scott. Transparency. Great talking to you, man. Thanks, this Larry. is fascinating stuff. I could go on forever, and I know you probably want to get the hell out of here. But I'm kicking uh, you out now. i got to go work. All right. Good. Get a monkey. Get a monkey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.